Hey everybody, Andrew here with a quick bit of breaking news. The tournament edition of Weekend Warrior Premium Podcasts is now available at knitcast.com. This is more than five hours of all new strategy material from Nate Mavis and myself. It f- covers topics of uh, pre-flop decision-making, continuation betting, getting value from your strong hands, hero folding, and bluffing. An hour of strategy dedicated to each of those topics following our popular Weekend Warrior format, which means all of the material is geared specifically towards the serious amateur player, focusing on the mistakes that we see those players making most commonly and the things that uh, they should focus their time and energy on. I should say that you should focus your time and energy on if you fall into that category. That is available now at www.nitcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com. Enjoy the show. Danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will be the day. Hello and welcome to episode 321 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I'm Andrew Brokus, joined by Nate Mavis in Melrose, Massachusetts, and Carlos Welch. Um, you're in Arizona, but I can't remember where. Bullhead City. Bullhead City, yes. How's the view from Bullhead City? It's great. Always great here. I love the mountains. And you're uh, you're doing all right? Yeah, I'm doing I'm doing well. Yeah, we're we're all socially distant. For for future listeners, we're right in the middle of the pandemic. We're talking about <laughs> this. Right, yeah. It comes easily to all of us. It's uh, these are, you know, I, I think for each of us, the people we're talking to are two of the people uh, that he would most like to uh, be within six feet of. But uh, none of us is within six feet of anyone right now. Sadly, sadly, I feel like by the time people listen to this they'll still be socially distancing. Yeah, I mean, I, not that I was super concerned about that um, going away, but I'm <laughs> going to put this episode, I think, out sooner. We did another interview earlier today, um, but I think I'm going to do this one first because I think we're likely to talk about that somewhat more. And uh, I guess, I mean, if anything, I feel like it's going to feel more distant because like things will have developed a lot in the next like week and a half before this uh, this airs. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm and not talking not, about Not in a like, month uh, goes away yeah. sense. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm, and I'm also not talking about like even people six months from now. Right I'm talking now, about yeah. like those uh, those wonderful souls who, yeah, just <laughs> yeah. well, they just discover the well, either historians or if we're still doing this in ten years, there's going to be somebody who's like yeah. a truck driver or someone who just discovers <laughs> the show and listens to it from episode one and then writes to us. Please write or, to us if you do that. Or the next species who takes over the earth when we're gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe they'll have yeah. truck drivers. <laughs> yeah. So what are you, you're, um, you're in a hotel, Carlos? Yes, I'm actually in um, the hotel, or one of the hotels that I originally um, went to after I moved out of the house with um, Alice Fitzgerald. 
This is one of the so, casino hotels. Yeah, that, actually, that's why I was up until two days ago when the governor closed all the casinos and kicked everybody out of those hotels. Ah. So I had to just take a hop, skip, and a jump across the river to Arizona. Hmm. That is, uh, it's really something. It's really something. I think uh, you, you're comfortable with unusual circumstances, though, yes? Yeah, it was um, pretty, um, um, I don't know if I want to use the word convenient, but I can't think of a better word. So it was pretty convenient to um, just, it, it wasn't a big change for me to move from one, he- one hotel room in Nevada to literally like half a mile away to another hotel room in Arizona where I think if other people have to like uproot their lives and move to another state, it would be a lot bigger <laughs> deal for them than for me. So like, now, I, yeah, I think I, you're about as well, well equipped as anyone could be for uh, the social distancing. <laughs> yeah, I was born for this. Definitely. <laughs> what are you doing for, for food? Do you have a stockpile laid in? I have a stockpile of emergency um, food just in case things really go to shit. Um, But um, right now I'm still doing like weekly trips to like um, the family dollar, the same family dollar that I used to record from. Um, Oh man, that was amazing. (laughs) Yeah, like I'll still go there and like get uh, just like um, <sighs> discount cancer pineapple was the thing you were getting. I got pineapples. <laughs> I, I do. I do have pineapples right now. <laughs> I got pineapples, but I'm still. I'm trying to think. Okay, how best to describe this? Like, um, like I'm still eating pre-pandemic food right now, but I do have a stockpile of. Um, um, rice and beans as needed. I don't want to go into those until I really need to. <laughs> <laughs> so I was a little, I mean, not, not surprised, but it seemed a little out of character to me. You know, your, um, your, your Twitter presence, I feel like you're usually, you're not evangelical about the, the choices that you've made in your life. I mean, you're, you're happy to like talk about it or sort of like be an example to people, but I feel like you're rarely like encouraging people to do anything in particular, telling people what they you know, should do or anything like that. But you have been reasonably outspoken on, you know, like saying you know, people should be like taking this seriously and, and taking these precautions, um, which I, th- I mean, which I think is like good and right. It just seemed a little out of character for you, but I assume that was something that you kind of made like a deliberate choice that you wanted to, uh, this was like important enough to you that you, that you wanted to like, use your rare uh like the credibility that you've stored up through not telling people what to do for all these years <laughs> yeah like i don't really care what people do unless what they do threatens the life of my grandmother <laughs> then then it kind of like you know uh it changes things a little bit like um yeah that that's the big deal like be, because this isn't just like you know some person who chooses to like do drugs or whatever else people do that I might not agree with that isn't a big um, hindrance on other people's lives 
this is like way different from that. Like this is like personal choices are not just affecting lives in your local area, but around the entire world. Yeah. So this is this is a a um, literally once in a lifetime um, event. Let's well, hopefully, stuff. yeah, <laughs> yeah. So how are you keeping busy? The usual. Online poker and uh, online poker. I, yes. I started to say end, but it's really just online poker, isn't it? Playing online poker and coaching online poker. Okay. So, so yeah, that that is that's part of why this isn't as tough for me as other people because my actual life was already pandemic ready, and so this is me kind of just doing what I normally do anyway. Um. I I guess I feel a little bit sorry for the extroverts who are always telling me that, you know, when I'm at the poker table, I need to smile more and talk to people. And and I'm like, OK, I don't want to do that stuff. So I'm just going to do what I normally do. It's like, like, like you can't tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> but then those guys now I'm telling you, you need to be more like me when you're at the poker table, like quit talking so much and pay attention. <laughs> but not. But but now those guys like really want to have like social interaction. So I'm having a little bit more compassion for introverts these days. Yeah, I've been I, feeling that too. And it, it is something that's like, it's not, um, I don't like feel it viscerally. Like how, how difficult it must be for people who really do like crave a lot of social. Like I, I know intellectually that that's a, a thing and I do sort of like feel i guess empathy but i don't um i'm not like like i, I don't know what that would feel like to like to, to, like, to like really be craving that kind of um you just like needing to have people around for everything like close your eyes right now and imagine what will kasuf is feeling right <laughs> it's this is unkind but like I feel like if Will Kasuf closed his eyes and started talking, like he might get a reasonable substitute for. for <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Will. <laughs> He's, not I, I He's not listening to the show. He's not listening to the show. He's not listening to the show. Yeah, I. Um, I think I've said this on the air before. The time that like we were going to play together and we were chatting, and then like we were at a table together. And I casually said something to you and got like a stony stare from you. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Carlos not talking at the table. That's that's for everyone. Okay. I've, I've been on the receiving end of that myself. <laughs> now, I believe that was a sit and go that Nate and I played together. I think Nate was on my immediate left and Maurice Hawkins was on his immediate left. Yeah. So there was enough talk. I, actually, he was pretty quiet that day too, from what I remember. Yeah. Yeah. You're- you're a powerful man, Carlos. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Have you noticed uh, changes in the online games? Um, bigger, bigger fields, or uh, I guess it could be weaker or tougher. I'm, I'm curious, like what what changes you've noticed since people have stopped playing live poker? Bigger fields. Um, I haven't seen. Um, I wouldn't say that the fields are tougher, but um, definitely bigger. And there's some good and bad with that. Um, I think for just generally people would say that bigger fields and more people playing in tournaments is a good thing. You like but I kind of like, 
Yeah, I, I kind of enjoy the small feels. So my point was, man, if there's going to be like new people, like I don't really want bigger feels, but I would love like more small feels. Mm -hmm. So like, so I play on Bavada, which is uh, kind of a site that doesn't have a lot of volume in terms of the number of tournaments you can play at one time. Um, I think maximum with, you know, my ABI, I could probably get somewhere like four to six tables max. If I could do maybe like 10 tables of small fills, I'd rather have that than like four tables or six tables of um, fill sizes that are like 30, 40% bigger than they were a month ago. But you haven't really noticed a, a difference in terms of like the caliber of players that there's you know, more more pro. Like I'm, I'm not really sure what to guess in terms of you know would we see just like a bunch of pros who don't usually play online flocking to, to play online? Like I've I've played a little bit. Like the most I've ever played from the U.S. Um, I've I've played in the last two weeks, but that still is only once a week. Right. Um, not at all. It's like definitely not. Um, like everybody sucks. Everybody still sucks, <laughs> and they seem to be getting worse. But maybe this is just a Bavada thing. Uh, I think ACR actually Bavada was down yesterday, so I had to play on ACR, and I was dreading it because you could actually see the player names. And when I pulled up the lobby, I saw a lot of people I recognized, and I was like, "Man, I don't want to play with these people." Like they're not they're not gonna be limping. <laughs> Nobody's gonna be like, you know, calling off with third pair for stacks, fifty to XD. <laughs> and so um um I did eventually um play on there and it wasn't as bad as I thought. It almost felt softer than it did the last time I played, which was probably like, I don't know, six months ago or something on um ACR. Um, but it does there is something to sitting at an anonymous table and not knowing anybody, obviously, because you can't, there's no player names, but just from the play, realizing that, okay, this is it. Nobody I know would be making these plays. So this is just me and a table full of randoms and um, bots. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny. I've been listening to um, a, a podcast about uh, novel writing. It's one of the things I've been uh, doing in my in my sudden spare time. <laughs> and um, there, there's a, a thing that they it kind of comes up several times over the course. They've done like twelve seasons or something. Um, so so you, you sort of start to hear the same jokes a, a few times, or the same lines or whatever. And uh, one of the things they're <laughs> talking about is a lot of people feel like it's unfair that when you like submit something for publication, it's like pretty well known that it doesn't usually get like not a lot of attention. Like you might submit a novel that you spent like years working on, is like hundreds of pages long, and you know a lot of times the person making the decision about whether to publish it is like reads the first paragraph and is like, nope. <laughs> And so a lot of people, like, it feels, like, really unfair to them. And their point is, you know, imagine that you listen to someone who's been playing the piano for, like, 20 years, 
and then you listen to someone who's been playing for one year. Like, how long do you need to hear them play before you know the difference? Like, which one is which? It gets you know, a couple of, uh, you know, a minute probably at most, and you're like, okay, I know who's good and who's not. And I feel like now that you're saying that, like, I think there's a lot of stuff about poker that's like that too, where you just see a single play and you're like, well, no good player would ever do that. I mean, you're not necessarily going to know like exactly how good they are, but you can pretty easily, like there's a lot of stuff where you can definitively say like, well, you're not good. I don't know just how bad you are, but you're not good. Definitely. I see that all the time. Um, Open limping from a hundred bigs deep um, under the gun. You see that a lot. And um, wait, wait, wait. I, I, I do that. I do that one. That's uh. (laughs) <laughs> okay um uh, you not, not very you, often but you know that's uh, okay tell me the rationale for it because I, I always tell my students i can't think of a single reason why a good player would ever do this with well, you I, being yeah with yeah. uh it, yeah if if the table is aggressive enough that pots are going to get raised most of the time anyway then like why would i raise it's going to get raised behind me if i want more money to go in the pot i i can just limp and let somebody else raise yeah, this, this is I straight off just... of the coaching carlos premium podcasts yeah but that was slightly different in my opinion because it was a cash game and um there's i guess there's no antis at it you know when you're 100 bigs deep in a tournament usually either so yeah i can see what they're could be some similarities i would probably say that it's the reason um i would never do it in the games i'm playing is because they aren't um um overly aggressive in that way like i think that was one of the adjust the reasons we talked about doing that as an adjustment in those games um was a reaction to how I guess aggressive the other players were Mm -hmm. in in these games it's just not it's not necessary like it's not necessarily going to get raised anyway in in the games that I'm playing so I guess that is the big difference yeah I mean it's uh, a lot of times it doesn't help that much but I do like it as an adjustment and there's also just the basic point that driving out the blinds is good but playing out of position is hard and if you limp with like pocket nines instead of raising with them i mean if you end up seeing an unraised uh, a flop in an unraised pot like that's no tragedy that's no tragedy okay this is actually getting into some strategy stuff that i'm kind of excited about so i'll I'll bring this up yeah actually what you just said um kind of led into something that i learned from ryan so uh i'm sure if um, a lot of the guys, a lot of listeners know Ryan LaPlante, who's coaching me right now. Um, he was Stone one, Cold Crusher. Yeah. Nice, super nice guy. I, I'm, yeah. I'm a big fan. Big fan. Yeah. Also a Ryan, crusher. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan's awesome. And so he was one of the people that really explained to me how much limping is involved even in GTO from certain stack depths, from certain positions. So when he basically gave me permission to limp um, with like 15 to 20 big blind stacks in late position, and I think you could probably even go up to like 20 to 25 in middle or early position, I kind of took it too far (laughs) and started doing it from like 40 and 50 bigs from early position. And for me, the main problem was, say, a hand like ace-king offsuit. You got 40 bigs, you're under the gun, you raise that hand at a passive table, you get like five callers, 
and you miss the flop. And even if you don't get, it's not necessarily about five callers. It's about getting called by at least one person in position. And if I miss that flop, I'm not doing a whole bunch of C betting there because again, these people don't fold. And once I'm starting to do this from like 30 and 40 big blind stacks, that C bet can become a significant percentage of my stack. So I would end up like, you know, doing what I think is a GTO play and like doing a lot of check folding in those spots, especially if you're like three or four ways. And one way around that was to start out with a limp. Because again, if 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 they do raise, like you said, you can always let re-raise. And if they don't, at least the pot is manageable to where if you fire a bet is not such a big percentage of your stack. But I got away from that when I realized something recently is that when you bet, you don't like your bet. And, and this kind of goes to something that Andrew and I discussed in the um, single table satellite um, premium podcast we did, which is if you bet if you bet small enough, it doesn't it's hard for it to be a mistake if you bet small enough. So in a spot where you don't want to bet, say you open off 30 bigs, middle position, get a caller or two in position on you and you miss the flop. If you make like a third pot bet, that might be kind of significant to you and it could be a mistake. But I'm betting like 15% pot in those spots. And it serves the purpose of getting me closer to showdown without um, committing myself to the pot. And it works well in passive games because people don't raise their butt, that bet nearly as often as they should. So in cases where I used to limp in middle and early position from those type of stack sizes, now I just go ahead and raise and then just like see that super small in a spot where I normally would check if this wasn't no limit and I was allowed to bet any size I wanted. Yeah, I also feel like the um, the getting called by five people or whatever is not that. I mean, you do have to accept that you're not going to win a lot of pots where you don't hit an ace or a king, but you are going to win most of the pots where you do hit an ace or a king and you're going to hit the ace or the king about 30% of the time. So if you're getting five to one or six to one with the antis, you know, if, if you're getting five and a half to one, we'll say, um, on your, on your money and you're winning about a third of the pots, like that's a pretty good deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good deal. But I, I just think about that frustration you get when you're, Kind of not not exactly short yet, sometimes short, but like too short to shove, like 25, 30 is big. Yeah. And you open, and you open, and, and it's like you waited all this time for a hand, you finally get <laughs> ace king, and you missed the flop. And then, and so it's almost like if you could like command your opponents to check behind when you check, you would. <laughs> and uh, bet, betting like one and a half big blinds into like a, uh, what eight nine big blind pot that kind of happens is almost like you're forcing them to just call that which is effectively like a check so of course when you hit the flop um, you're going to win those type of hands but I've done that and made that bet two or three times and gotten the showdown and won with ace high 
in a spot where I normally would have just check folded. Hmm. And that's massive when your stack starts off that small in the first place. Yeah, th- this is a, uh, a fight that I have often with coaching students is uh, convincing them that they can't just have static raising ranges. You know, I think a lot of people just don't want to raise the flop unless they can beat top pair. You know, if they have like two pair better, they'll raise. Other than that, they think of it as a calling hand. And there's there's so many exceptions to that, but one of the big ones is just when the sizing is not large, right? If your opponent only bets 15% of the pot, you can you know, make a half pot raise that's still risking like less than what's in the pot, um, and you know your opponent is going to be getting pretty good odds to call that. So you can do stuff like, and you should do stuff like raise top pair, sometimes even raise middle pair, raise straight draws, and those hands have like good equity when called, and also benefit a lot from folds when your opponent makes a large larger bet, then you know, he's more polarized and you need more, more polarized for raising him. But when he makes a small bet, he's he should be more depolarized. And so you need to be less polarized when you raise. And I do think a lot of people are getting like those small C bets. I mean, it is kind of the correct strategy in multi-way pots anyway to use smaller C bet sizes. But I think especially at this like moment, those are more profitable than they should be in theory because people are not very good at, as you say, at responding to them by raising appropriately, or people treat it as though they are only allowed to call or fold unless they have two pair or better. And um, that's actually not a rule of poker. Right. And, and with them being like naturally passive players anyway, what, what, what I find happens a lot of the times is obviously, like you mentioned, they don't raise with top pair or, sometimes even like strong draws that they should raise with but on the flip side of that they also call with hands that it's hard for me to say they shouldn't call with these hands because they're getting such a good price to call with them but they'll just like call all the way down with like king high or ace high or something Mm -hmm. in a spot where i'm basically just trying to cheaply get myself to show down with ace king and you effectively turn this no pair hand into you 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 basically making thin value bets and you're getting called by worse in multi-way pots yeah. on wet boards <laughs> it is is crazy how often that works but you need a particularly passive a type type of opponent to um pull that off i will say too for for um and I do kind of agree with Nate that I think limping, I guess I don't do it a whole lot once there's antis out there, but um, I, I still will sometimes, especially in the like aggressive, uh, even with like 100 big blind stack, but it would, it would mostly be at, at the aggressive table. But um, th- despite my like advocacy of limping, I do typically tell my student, especially more like recreational students, not to do it because I think most people just can't resist the temptation of treating it as a compromise, right? Where they just want to use it as an excuse to play hands that they shouldn't be playing. So, I mean, I think at least when you're, even if it turns out that limping, like with Ace-King offsuit in that scenario is not actually the best way of playing it, you at least had, like obviously Ace-King is a hand you'd be playing anyway, and you had a pretty specific reason for limping it. And I find that a lot of people, once you like take off those handcuffs of, um, 
like there's a reason you've been told so many times don't limp um and it is to like keep you out of trouble and i think a lot of people once they take those handcuffs off they just see you know queen jack offsuit or whatever and they're like oh that's you know it's two broadway cards you could make a straight i'll limp it's only one big blind i like once you start giving yourself permission to do that you have to know that you're capable of having the discipline to, to fold hands like that and not just think that like limping is an excuse to play um hands that aren't strong enough to play from under the gun yeah, yeah, I agree with that for sure. So when you're working with um, Ryan, I mean, I know his his approach is, I think he says like informed by game theory, or I think that's a, a good way of, of putting it anyway. Um, does he have you doing any kind of like uh, solver solver work? No, basically his approach is just to teach game theory in order to learn how to max- maximally deviate from it mm-hmm. to um, exploit um, opponents who aren't um, playing in that way. And um, he and I haven't done much solver work. I've seen um, some of the solver work that he's done in some of his training videos but as far as, you know, he and I going through um, PO Solver, uh, we haven't done that. It's mainly um, hand history reviews and just using an equity calculator to, like, analyze spots. I just asked because it seems like as much as you, like, typically will, will just kind of, like, geek out over poker stuff, it doesn't seem like the solvers have ever really held much appeal for you. No, not at all, because um, I think primarily because, the, and I know this is a, I was going to say unpopular opinion, but this might actually be the popular opinion, but it's, it, this is the, this is the, um, a popular opinion amongst recreational players, and it's unpopular against professionals. Like this whole idea of like, you have to learn GTO to know how to maximally exploit uh, your opponents I don't think I need to know GTO to beat some of the people I'm playing against like I know how to maximally well, but those are two different no things to, to beat and to maximally exploit but go on I was gonna say like um, so for example like one of the things you would learn if you were studying Peel Solver is how much your opponent should be check raising versus small bets and so if I study PL solver, I would realize, oh, maybe like my opponent's supposed to be check raising 20, 25% of the time versus this small bet. And they're not. So I'm gonna get I'm gonna that means I can get away with these small bets. I figured that out without using PL solver. <laughs> so I didn't need to learn the, that in order to learn how to exploit it. I just click the button and they didn't raise and I figured out oh they're never gonna raise like you said unless they unless they have two pair better it's just like you know I'm sure there's some very I'm sure there's a lot of spots that would be uh illuminated by what by watching like a um a uh a peel solver um Print out. I don't know what the right word is. Whatever it spits yeah, out. Solution or output. So yeah, yeah. yeah so so watching the um, peel solver output will kind of like illuminate some things, but I think the big broad ones are kind of obvious when you're playing against people as bad as I'm playing against. 
I guess I would think, though, just knowing you, I, I, I might have guessed that it would just be of sort of like intellectual curiosity, even if you didn't feel like it was necessary to improve your game, that you might just enjoy like tooling around with it. I mean, as, as someone with both like a background and interest in math and also obviously like a pretty strong interest in poker, just like being able to look at an answer key seems like it would be kind of fun for you. I like watching you do it in the TPE videos. <laughs> I just don't want to do it myself. It is a lot of and work. I don't want to buy, <laughs> I don't want to buy a computer that <laughs> that's capable of doing that. <laughs> I think you gotta like uh, have a pretty um, strong. Um, no, your your current, your current computer could do it. Don't you have to like let it run overnight and all this kind of stuff? No. So there's there's two different things. I mean, to to just do like a single simulation that's. Of re- I mean, you kind of learn like what are the ways to keep the size down. But, I mean, mostly it's just like it explodes exponentially. Um, so you can't like if you do a bunch of flop sizes. If you allow three different bet sizes on the flop, that's going to make your tree really big. But as long as you keep like the number of flop sizes down, other than that, you're going to be able to put so like oh no, it's just a sort of like typical. I mean, my mine is not an especially powerful computer, and it's like three years old, and uh, it takes me 10 minutes or less to run most of the simulations that I want to run. The thing, when you hear about people running stuff overnight, they're doing what's called a script, which means that they're running the same parameters over a bunch of different flops. So you can just put in, you know, okay, we're going to start with 100 big blinds, and we're going to start with this much in the pot, and I'm going to allow these bet size options and these check raise size options and these starting ranges. Okay, now run that on each of these 50 flops. Go. So now that's going to take 50 times 10 minutes. So that's starting to add up to, like, the kind of time where you just let it run overnight, and then when you wake up in the morning, it's like, run, and it's got, got an output. You can look at each of the solutions uh, individually, or you like you've seen me do on on TPE, you can um, look at it in like a spreadsheet format and sort of have some aggregated data of what's the like overall CBET frequency across all these flops, and then what are the flops that have higher or lower CBET frequencies? Which ones use the different bet sizes? That's the kind of thing people are doing. That, or I think maybe um, I've I've not done any preflop solving. Uh, I think that's you know that's obviously a much larger uh, game tree once you have to um, when you like take another big step. Uh, back like step up another branch on, right. on the tree um so i think that's the sort of thing that you either i think in some cases i think people are even just like buying um computer power from amazon web services or whatever to run that kind of stuff interesting yeah like that yeah i think um like you said if um i had more experience with that sort of thing I can see it being something that was um, that I could kind of like get into, but at this point, um, I haven't found like um, the need or the um, uh, reasoning for it yet. Yeah, I, I don't think there is a need. I mean, I, I think for most people, it would have to be either um for, I mean, for people who are not even even if you're a professional poker player i think you're mostly going to get more out of watching work that someone else has done um you you're just like training videos or books or whatever that are drawing on insights from PioSaber. like that's probably more valuable than doing the work yourself if you're especially if you're new to to doing it i do think though like the more that you understand 
what to do with it like it is starting to get to be fun for me so like my the book that i'm working on now the the sequel to play optimal poker has a lot more like actual biosolver stuff in it play optimal poker was more like toy games and they were just like one or two things that actually used the solver this the current book is i mean it's still kind of trying to draw the same insights but it's looking at real poker situations rather than toy games so i am doing a lot more like solver simulations and it is starting to to feel like i'm doing a puzzle or something where you get this output and then you're looking for surprising things. we're like oh why is it you know i I would have thought that was a good check raising hand but it actually doesn't check raise that very much like what's going on there i would have thought it would be doing a lot of check raising here and it's not doing a lot of check raising just like finding little puzzles like that and then trying to dig into it and and figure out um why the solution looks the way that it does there's a lot that you can geek out on there see that that appeals to me and i think um, when I read that book, I think it'll kind of like inspire me to like dig more into Peel Solver. So what does your, um, when you're studying, I mean, aside from work that you're doing with, with Ryan, when you're just like studying yourself, are you just like running through hand histories, watching training videos? What does what your studying look like these days? Um, nowadays it's mostly just running through hand histories and because you can see all the whole cards after the tournament's over on Bovada, um, um, making sure to pay attention to how other people are playing at the table and just developing a, a general idea of like the lines that the, the player pool is taking like a population. And yeah, exactly. So a lot of that kind of stuff and like seeing how my plays work. Like, for example, I do get raised a decent percentage of the time when I bet small. So I get to see like what type of hands they're raising me with because um, I don't mind saying this on the air. Um, most times I fold. <laughs> most times when I bet 15% fine, I don't have anything. And if they raise me, I fold. And so I want to make sure I'm not um overfolding in those spots mm-hmm. and like every time it's like two pair better or if it's a draw it's a um like an eight out or eight out draw nine out draw is like people aren't doing it with like like um back doors like they should mm-hmm. and so as long as that's the case i know that that bet is um is effective so I'm just basically like, you know, going through, making sure all my plays are effective and getting an idea, getting an idea of how trends in the population um, change over time. I think that is a case where it's kind of useful to be results-oriented because this is another like common um, conversation <laughs> that I have with a lot of my more recreational students yeah. is people tend to worry, like they take so much stuff personally. You know, they, they think it's about them where they're like oh he's raising because he thinks i'm weak he's raising because i'm an old guy he's raising because he saw me fold this other hand he's raising because i've you know or he's raising because i bet small you know they always think it's like something that they did i'm like no they're raising because of what their cards are it has very little to do with you (laughs) yeah i used to be one of those guys like i always felt that if i bet small and got raised my first thought was like ah i induced that and now i gotta do something about it and it's just so rare that that's the case. And the times that it is the case, it's not that hard to pick up on it. And when I do, I just switch. I just bet small with my big hands. At no point do I ref- uh, 
revert to a balance strategy against these bad players. It's like I exploit their passivity like the average player in these tournaments are going to be passive. So I just do things like the small bet to exploit their passivity. And the moment one of them sticks out as um, aggressive, I just switch and start purposely inducing with big hands by betting small. But I don't revert to um, a balanced strategy unless I'm playing against known regs. And honestly, I rarely see them on this site. Rarely. When you say known, I mean, how would you know that they're... Um, Basically, if they are using something close to a GTO strategy... So you just know that, or, that they are a rig, not that you know which rig they are. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you're I, right. I, I misunderstood what you meant by known. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, when I recognize that they're a good player, not that I know exactly who that yeah, good player is. So what does your uh, hotel look like these days? Is it is it just you? <laughs> Who, who's staying at these uh, at a hotel in, in Bullhead City, Arizona right now? Um, a bunch of people that I really, really don't want to be in contact with yeah. if I get this virus. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of 70, 80-year-olds around here, man. So I'm like extra paranoid. Like I'm, I want to like open the door with my hand with my shirt wrapped around my hand and it was like, man, cause like, yeah, I will wipe this place out <laughs> if, uh, if I got anything. So yeah, it's uh, the retiree crowd are my neighbors these days. What, what, do you know what they do? Why, what are they doing? Why are they there? I think they live here. <laughs> in, in the hotel? Yes, this is like a, um, um extended stay type hotel Uh, and a a lot of them are like um snowbirds i see i see i see i see yeah so i'm really um trying to stay away from these people (laughs) (sighs) you're you're a good citizen carlos yeah yeah i try to be but then you know the more i think now i've been doing a little bit of research you know what this might be the second time i've save somebody life on this podcast <laughs> so <laughs> i don't know why well, I, I should i've actually thought about whether i should say this or not on the podcast because this isn't like um um scientifically verified but i heard it from and I, i'm not going to pronounce his last name right black people can't uh, get the coronavirus not that (laughs) but uh dr uh fauci is that how you say his last name oh that guy yeah yeah he is um basically i want to say the basically the head doctor that is um basically overseeing the uh u.s's response to this uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic and I heard him say something in an interview that was alarming and he made very sure to say that this hasn't been researched, it's just my hunch and 
I'm going to say that times 10 because it's a second hand. But he was saying this isn't in the literature. There hasn't been like tests done on this. But in his experience, in his expertise, he thinks that the uh, blood pressure, some of the blood pressure medications could possibly make you more susceptible to getting coronavirus because a lot of them are called um, ACE inhibitors, which block certain receptors on your cells to kind of keep your blood pressure down. And that could, um, I guess, uh, increase the expression of other receptors, which just so happen to be the receptors that the coronavirus attaches to. So when I heard that, uh, it scared the hell out of me because I'm taking one of these blood pressure medications. And so maybe I'm just, it, maybe these blood pressure meds have effectively turned me into an ADO man. So maybe I got to be more afraid of these people than they need to be of me when it comes to uh, possibly getting this thing passed um, around. So, again, I'm not saying, like, don't take your blood pressure meds. And I don't think the doctor is saying that. He's saying that if he was, like, was to conduct an experiment, that's something, like, that's a hypothesis that he would like to test. But it hasn't been tested. So, you can't really act on it. Um, But maybe I'll, like, link you guys to that um, interview so people can watch it, you know, from the horse's mouth. So... Yeah. Blame, yeah, blame him, not me. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I read about that too. It's an interesting okay. hypothesis. Yeah, yeah. Um, he said that out of Italy, something like seventy-five percent of the people who ended up dying from this had high blood pressure, mm-hmm. and that percentage was a lot higher than a lot of the other um, comorbidities that you would expect to be more of an issue, like respiratory um, problems and that's what made him like wonder why that was probably the case so I'm not going to stop taking my meds I'm just going to um, stay away from spring breakers it's a good plan (laughs) yes can you start getting your meds from a drive-thru pharmacy Um, oh god let me tell you about that (laughs) Um, no. I've already heard about it secondhand. Emily was upset with you. She was upset with me. I didn't have a choice. Uh, But, so for the listeners and for Nate, uh, I basically spent a good deal of time in the San Diego area over the past couple of months until this whole thing got um, serious. And when I realized it was serious and started doing a little research, I decided, like, I don't want to be around people so i was like what place do i know that has like low population density um um, density um so i left san diego and i came back to bullhead city for that exact reason so i got the hell out of town came here and like everything was um good to go and then i ran out of um the meds and so i tried to go online to reorder and i couldn't because my insurance is out of um, Oregon, where I work, and 
it wasn't for whatever reason I couldn't do I couldn't get the meds from a California pharmacy online because my insurance was based out of Oregon. So then I tried to call the number and of course they're super busy. So they, you know, you're on hold. You're not on, I guess it's hold, but you're trying to get in, get through the line for like, you know, 30, 45 minutes. And, you know, I tried that a couple of times, couldn't get in. So I'm like, I'm just going to have to drive back to California to get these meds. So I did that this past Monday and going into that pharmacy felt like an episode of MASH where uh, there's just like coughing and people with masks. Some people not even like, like you're in a pharmacy during a pandemic and you're not covering your mouth when you cough. Uh. Yeah. So I was like, I don't know if I'm going to survive just coming to pick up the damn blood pressure meds. But I went in. I got them, and also I told them, like, oh, this is kind of funny. I asked the lady if I could get, like, extra so that I don't have to come back um, soon in case, you know, things go downhill from here. And she looks at me, and she says, uh, well, what you have here is a three-month supply. Uh, that should be plenty. And I gave her a look like, eh? and then she's yeah. like, <laughs> and then she's like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so we both, you know, without using words, <laughs> we like facial expressions communicated that this thing may not be over in three months. <laughs> so they gave me what was known as a vacation supply in addition to my normal refill. So now I have um, six months worth of um, blood pressure meds that I don't have to drive back to California for. Um, so if anybody is like, you know, in <laughs> this pos position that I am in where you can't just like call and have this stuff mailed to you because you don't have an address like me, um, if you do have to go into the pharmacy, try to ask for a um, an extra vacation supply so you don't have to come back as um, soon as you normally would. Well, but part, part of what I meant to give you a hard time about is I thought most pharmacies, I mean, thankfully, I have not had a lot of cause to go to pharmacies, but the last time I did, there was a drive-through where you didn't have to actually go into the pharmacy. Ew, that's what you meant. No, um, this one doesn't have that. This one is actually attached to a, um, I'm going to say medical center. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's quite the same thing yeah, as a hospital. I know what you mean, though, yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh you actually God. have this to. This is like, I, I'm a lifelong germaphobe, and the idea of having the whole state of California to choose from and getting your drugs in this way, like, my, my hair is on end right now. Like, what, 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 what were you doing, Carlos? <laughs> yeah, I didn't have a choice, man. I wish I could. Like, like I, I mean, I wish I could have just, like, gone to the Walmart, and maybe I could have done this, but I wouldn't know how to do it because I couldn't get in touch with anybody because of the phones. Like, even if I could, like, just go take the empty bottle to Walmart and say, hey, give me more of this. I'll just pay for it out of pocket. I would have done that. But um, I think you kind of like have to go through your, um, I don't think you could just bring an empty bottle to any pharmacy and say, hey, give me more of these. That yeah, seems like it would be a bad idea. Do you have your prescription? Uh, I have what's written on the side of the bottle. I don't have like the paperwork they gave me with it. Yeah, you can always, if you've got a prescription, the pharmacy will sell you drugs. 
Like that's their whole job is selling you drugs. It's uh, so do, yeah. How, how do they see this? Is they so you can help me with this because I'm new to this health insurance shit. Um, <laughs> how how do they know that? Like, is there like a central database from like all doctors that know? So you can so you can like bring yeah. them a, a, a paper prescription. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how all this works, but in a lot of cases, if your insurance would pay for it, you can pay for it and get reimbursed. Um, and otherwise, like I don't know, it's like it's 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 like uh, trying to buy alcohol. You know, like if you've got your license, they'll sell it to you. They want to well, sell you the beer. They want to sell you the wine. If they have the drugs, like. If you have permission in the form of a prescription, they will happily take their money. See, that's what I'm saying. Like, can you do that with just the empty bottle or do you have to have that receipt thing that came with the empty bottle? Uh, I believe you have to have the receipt thing. Like, you have to establish that. Like, like, so I don't think that, like, refill this three times counts as a prescription. I'm not sure. Probably, like, 100 people are yelling at their radios or or, or phones or whatever (laughs) right now because they know better. But, uh, like, you know, you can usually call up your doctor and say like hey can you phone in the prescription to the walmart on the corner or or wherever you want to get it filled um and it's a quick process it's, yeah uh, see that's what you do when there's not a pandemic but during a pandemic you can't just call your doctor because they don't answer the phone mm-hmm. and that, that was my experience at least mm-hmm. um I think they just like there's a voice recording that says, "Oh, uh, uh, we're experiencing high call volumes. Uh, take care of this online." <laughs> and then you try to take care of it online, and you can't. So, mm-hmm. but I guess normal people who actually have the insurance insurance through the um, California offices, they're able to handle it online. So I think I can't be the only person. <laughs> who's in fact a lot of my neighbors here are probably from Oregon escaping uh, uh, the cold weather up there so I'm sure they figured this kind of stuff out but all this stuff is like super new to me yeah it, it is frustrating I mean, as, a, as a nomadic person myself how many of these systems are really not set up to accommodate you like there is a pretty yeah. strong assumption in a lot of cases that you are you know that you have like a single address that you have like an established doctor that you can that you have like a a state of residence where you'll be like consistently seeking care like there's a lot of um a lot of those assumptions are like built into the system even though like i mean the way that you're living is is on the extreme side of it but like it's not that uncommon that people are semi-nomadic at least these days yeah yeah you would think uh, you would think it would be a lot easier to get this stuff done um, in this uh, age of, you know, this technological age. Like, I guess they try to put a lot of this stuff online, but it doesn't work uh, as it should for everybody. But hey, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's easy to say this now, but also just like plan ahead. Come on, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. true. Um, I'll throw something out there that I haven't really talked about uh, publicly exclusive. yet. Exclusive. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, first. <laughs> it's exclusive and it's kind of like, I don't know how to feel about it, but I basically um, 
So what? Hell, this shows you how. Like, so you remember when I won the Bavada Major? Of course. Uh, oh. Which was April of uh, 2015. Like, it was so important that I actually remember the exact date and exactly how much I won. It was kind of life changing. And since that time, I, in my opinion, have gotten a lot better at poker. And I've had other big scores that, not as big as that one, but um, because things in general have been going like better for me, they're not as life-changing. So I can't even remember the date of this now, but I believe it was like maybe like five, six weeks ago, I got second in a um, 100K high roller on Bovada for 17K. Nice. And I don't even think I celebrated. I just like <laughs> won the tur- tournament and went to sleep. Well, in my mind, I went in the tournament. But got second in the tournament and like went to sleep. And I don't even think I tweeted about it. It was almost like... If you did, I missed it. I, I don't think I did. It was just like another day at the office. Like, um, and I And it just occurred to me earlier today when I was trying to think of like, okay, what news do I have? for the podcast i was like i guess i could tell them about that big score i had but like you know the old me you know i win five hundred dollars i'm going to celebrate at ihop at like (laughs) one one a.m but like you know i've kind of you know gotten a little bit more advanced in my poker career where having a big score like that isn't like a big deal it's more like you know Hey, it happens sometimes. True jaded um, grinder. <laughs> yeah. That's really healthy, though. It's the first step to losing, not hurting. That's um, it's a big, big step. Yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, probably about 5,000 of that uh, I've given back um, over the past month, but I'm happy with my play. And losing doesn't hurt. Like you said, losing doesn't hurt as much either. So, um I just think about, you know, for people who listen to the podcast, if you listen to me five years ago talking about winning twenty seven thousand versus to me talk about versus me talking about winning seventeen now, it's almost like night and day. Well well good for you. Congratulations. But bigger congratulations on being in a frame of mind where uh, you know, you take you take the wins in stride. It's uh, as as well as the losses. Yes. Thank you, thank you. Tommy Angelo is proud. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he would be. Like I, um, I think I was a little bit. Uh, I guess everybody feels this way, but I should have won the tournament, <laughs> um, and I didn't play well, heads up, and that even that didn't bother me as much as it would have in the past. Um, I think I was just tired. Like the tournament went kind of long, and I guess the the negative thing is like, you know, even when you lose a heads up battle like that, you still get seventeen thousand dollars for it. So that kind of like soothes the pain a little bit. I think twenty four hundred. I mean twenty four thousand was first. So, and I came in as a um, the guy had like maybe a four to one chip lead on me when I came in, and I got it up to even. And um, then I just like made some stupid mistakes, but I was I was probably upset about that for like an hour, 
And then I like went to sleep and just woke up the next day and was like back to the drawing board. <laughs> you know, it wasn't it wasn't like a big deal in either way. Now this this not even mentioning like like I'm mentioning this just because this is what outside of that cash in the main. This is my second biggest score. But I've also had, you know, several 10K scores and scores between, like, say, um, 7 and 10K that are almost, like, even not, not even worth mentioning where the, any of those would have been life-changing to me <laughs> five years ago. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that's a good thing to be in this, this position. Yeah, that's great. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank I you. Mean, for being in that position more so than, than for yeah. the, the scores. Right, right. I think at this point, uh, um, maybe maybe I'll smile if I get a 50K score. <laughs> 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 but everything else is like, eh, not worth getting out of bed for. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> well, thanks for taking the time to uh, talk to us and keep your keep oh. your head up and stay safe over there. Are we not going to do strategy? Oh, I thought we did. We did strategy. We did oh, strategy. I mean, we talked okay. all that time. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Like, if you if you got a, a hand or a concept or whatever you want to talk about, I'm, I'm game. I, don't know. I do have a hand. All right. Yeah. Nate, are, yeah, are, the, you, the are other you good to like, with me if you need to? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm tired, so I'll be quiet, but it's okay. I'm, okay. Yeah, then. Oh, yeah, yeah. Talking about strategy with Carlos and you? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yes. Sign me up. Pardon the interruption, but if you enjoy our strategy segments, please support our strategy sponsors. Two ways to do that. First, we've got Ryan LaPlante's training site, Learn Pro Poker, excellent resource for those interested in how to blend game theory and exploitative principles in multi-table tournaments across a variety of stakes and settings, low stakes, high stakes, online, live, Ryan does it all. And you can sign up using our affiliate link at thinkingpoker.net slash LPP. That's LPP for Learn Pro Poker. Also, Range Trainer Pro from former podcast guest KL Cleeton. This is an app that you can install on your phone to train your ranges. So you determine or you can purchase some of their uh, pre-solved packs of pre-flop ranges, hands you're going to play in various situations from various positions, and then it just spits you some examples that you can drill on. Great way to drill your tournament skills, especially when you're not able to get to the tables. You can sign up for that using our affiliate link at thinkingpoker.net slash RTP for Range Trainer Pro. Okay, so here's a hand that I played from a 15K guarantee, 135K, I'm also a $135 buy-in knockout tournament where the knockout is $25. So uh, in my experience, I calculate the knockout to be worth about... Um, Sorry, I'm sizing a three bet right now. <laughs> I've been playing the whole time we've been talking about that. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, the knockout is worth about 2K in chips. So, um, oh, wait a minute. So, action falls. I'm in a big blind. Action falls around to the cutoff who raises to 800 at the 200, 400 level with a uh, 10% ante, 40 chips. 
and I'm in the big blind. Oh, so the guy opens off a 30 bigs, and I just have him covered by a little. And the big blind was 7-6 offsuit, facing him in race. It's a pretty uncontroversial call, you think? Mm-hmm. All right. So I call. Um, flop comes Jack 9-6 rainbow. And I have 7-6 offsuit for bottom pair. Check, and my opponent bets 800 into a pot of 2160. What do we do here? Uh, I, w- I, wouldn't, I wouldn't fold and I wouldn't raise. Andrew? I mean, I guess raising is not completely out of the way. He has nine, he started with like 9K? He started with 12K. 12K. Um, the 200. Yeah, I think I, that that's, it feels like a lot to to jam in i mean so part of the thing with like the overlay from the um from the bounty is like it does matter how often that's like it it matters that you're going to be a significant dog to win the pot on the occasions that that goes into the pot um you know that that, it's obviously not in there for the purpose of like what getting a fold is is worth to you so yeah i i don't see um I mean, I guess I, I'm acting like the only option is to check raise all in. I mean, I guess I do feel like check raising, like once he has a bounty on him, it doesn't feel that appealing to me to like check raise less than all in just to like, what's the fluff again? <laughs> um, Jack nine, six rainbow. Yeah, seven, six. And we have six. Seven six for bottom pair. Yeah, I, I would not be real inclined to check raise. Um, it doesn't strike me as a board where people are just like firing with any two cards. Um, I think people like look at that board and see it as one where you know they can get check raised pretty easily. You can get a piece of it pretty easily. I think betting like ace king ace queen on this sort of board is not super um, appealing to people. So yeah, I guess I would just call. I feel like that's that's the wrong answer. Okay, so I, I do just call here. Oh, okay. so for some reason, the way you were setting that up, it, it's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I do just call here, but I hate to do this, but I want to make a quick little sidebar to that hand I just played where I was sizing that three bet. This guy, It's the exact same tournament we're talking about, the 135-15K knockout. Guy opens early, early position, I three bet kings. He rips 250 bigs with ace-queen offsuit. Wow. And I win. So these are the type of people I'm dealing with. I don't need pills. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, I check call on this flop. And the turn is a four of diamonds. Um, don't think there's any reason to lead here. So this is now Jack nine six four with a diamond draw? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I agree. No reason to lead. I check. He checks. And the river is the jack of diamonds. So now the board is jack, jack, nine, six, four. And a flush draw got there and the top card paired. Value betting is certainly not out of the question. Um, it does sort of cut against what I was saying about people tend not to bet. Like You need him to have a lot of ace high in his range to make value betting good. Um, he has a lot of incentive to call you with ASI because there's a ton of draws that missed. Um, 
the question is like how often is he betting those ace high hands on the flop um yeah i I feel like maybe a small uh like a blocking sort of bet probably the way i would go okay nate hmm i think you should have a betting range here Good, good. I'm off to a good start. I probably would put <laughs> yeah. this hand in it. I probably would put this hand. Like, it, it should probably be like a pretty big betting range. Uh, like, in that, like, there should be a lot of hands in it. Not necessarily that you should bet large. Um, mm, I, I'm not sure I'd have more than one bet size here. Um, I mean, if we're just playing exploitively, trying to get a call out of ace, ace high or a suspicious king high. Um, something like a third of the pot seems good. I take it, given how you describe your opponents, like bluff raises are not things to worry about, really, here? Definitely not. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I have nothing innovative to say about this. I think I would bet. I don't think checking is terrible, but I think betting is better. And uh, the hands you're trying to get value from are sufficiently weak that in the hands of very straightforward players, I would just value but small and and go from there. Um, yeah, so I'd bet a third of the pot. Okay, that makes sense to me from both of you guys. It's not what I did here. I wish I had done it, but I checked, and he bets third pot. Now what? I don't know. If you're like giving us this hand, I feel like you raised and I admire your heart. <laughs> uh, Lord. Yeah. Andrew. So the way you've described your opponents is not as the sort that uh that fold all that much, which makes me not want to check raise also. Um I don't find calling very appealing. I think a lot of people um, I feel this is going to be insulting to you if you did call. <laughs> I feel like calling here is a common error um, because people are sort of like, well, you know, maybe I induced the bluff by checking. I, I think mostly if these people wanted to bluff, they would have bet on the turn or they would have bet larger. I, I mean, I, the kinds of hands, like, I mean, if he has like ace queen or something, he's not even going to feel like he needs the bluff. Like he, that hand has showdown value. I think with him being an under the gun, he was under the gun, right? He was cut off. Oh, he's cut off. Okay. Yeah, so he has a lot more air yeah. in his range. Um, all right. For, I was thinking this whole hand that he was under the gun. All right, so, <laughs> yeah, I think you definitely value about the river then because his range is way wider and uh, and your range is wider. And I guess at this point I would call. Like, I think he has enough weekends in his range. that. Um, but I, I, I would feel a lot better. Like if I'm going to put a third pot in the, way, in the pot one way or the other, I'd much rather do it by betting them by checking and calling like you're, he's going to have way more bluff catchers than he's going to have bluffs yeah i agree with that i think um leading on this river we can get called by especially on this site uh passive players i think we can get called by a lot of ace highs and um i guess that's pretty much all we're talking about. i mean i guess he could have something like ace four Maybe like hit a pair on the turn or something, but for the most part, I think a bet there is targeting ace highs. But 
Um, and I wish I'd done it, but when I check river and he bet small on this river, um, I thought that he was pretty capped. And he definitely capped. It's a question of whether he faults. Yeah, I shoved here. Uh, primarily because, in my experience, these calling station types, like I call them stations because they really can't fold hands when it's not for significant chunks of their stack. But a lot of times you can put them all in and you kind of play in a way that, like I would play a lot of weak jacks this way. And also um, some of the um, flush draws where I don't think he is going to almost ever have those type of hands when he chooses his best size on the river. Uh, so when I can put like a lot of big hands in my range and very few in his and I can put them all in, um, to me, that's a spot even where you can get some um, calling station types. So obviously, he's going to fold all those ace high type hands, but even something like sevens or eights, that's like, what, third pair now. And some maybe some of the weaker 9x, which is, I guess, I don't know what you would call that. It's not third pair because it, it was second pair on the flop, but then the top <laughs> right, card right. pair. Is that still? Yeah, I don't know what to call that. <laughs> but I think those type of hands... It's like, I don't know if he would fold if just the jack came. And I don't know if he would fold if just the diamond came. But when the jack came and the diamond came, there's a lot lot for him to be afraid of. Yeah. And I have a seven of diamonds. I didn't mention that. So I don't know if that, this is that GTL stuff that I don't (laughs) quite know about. But I think the blocker matters somehow here. But... I don't know if I would like not do this if I didn't have a jack. If I didn't have a diamond, I just feel like this guy never has a flush, never has a jack. So let's see if he can call with pocket eights or a nine. So I shoved, and he folded in game. And after the game, I could see that he had queen nine of clubs. Nice. So he did have a hand that. Uh, I was a little bit surprised that he bet that on the river. It's definitely a bet, but a lot of people are like, they really just want to like show down and win. So I give him like kudos for, I think he's probably a better player than most on this site because most people won't even go for that value bet on the river because um, they don't, I don't know why they don't do it, but the fact that he bet and then fold it, to this shove, I think means that he's probably one of the better players on the site. Because a lot of people either won't bet, or if they do bet, um, they might call the shove. Yeah, I, I will say, so, if you think he's not making thin value bets, I don't think check raising the river makes very like. So you shouldn't be surprised to see queen nine here if you're check raising the river. Is I guess what I'm what I'm getting at. If you wouldn't expect him to bet queen nine, then I don't think check raising the river makes very much sense because this is like exactly the kind of hand you're trying to get him off of. Um, that, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but I guess what I'm thinking is most people are, if they're not betting a nine here when they do bet, 
for that size, they're probably just their range is probably like bluff heavy. A type of hand where they think, well, I can't win if I don't bet. Maybe like king high, queen high, something like that. Well, yeah, but in that case, you just call. That's true. That's true too. Like the the, the reason to check raise is to punish thin value bets. Like that's the main thing that you're punishing by check raise bluffing. Um, at yeah, because you're taking probably a hand that like sevens or eights. Yeah. When you're taking a hand that could be to bluff, and you're and you're raising with it, it it's got to be to punish thin value bets. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And and so, um, but but you know all maybe, the exploits without studying game theory. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe um, this line, and I don't. I definitely did not have this information in the game. At least I can't. I can't claim to have had this information in the game. Maybe I did, because I am pretty uh, deliberate about uh, color-coding my opponents and, like, categorizing them. But if I had this guy kind of tagged as, like, a regular, um, um, like, passive player on the site, then I think I like just calling this riverbed way more than this, for the exact reason you said, because we can't give them credit for betting a nine. But so that's my green color. So for my yellow, that's gonna like you know some passive tendencies and also some aggressive tendencies. Like those are some of the better players on this site, and I think those types might have more nines and pocket tens type hands in their range here. And I think I like this more so against them. So yeah, and they're also the ones who have been like essentially ed miller trained if not literally ed miller trained to to bet fold you know just like yeah. no one ever check raise bluffs so i'm just gonna you know make these like blatant thin value bets with a uh, you know, blatant sizing like that and then since i'm not worried about getting raised as a bluff then if someone does raise me i fold like that's the perfect person to exploit with something like this yeah this play works super well against me <laughs> yeah i'm definitely the guy that will bet the queen nine here and then like full quote-unquote the top of my range versus a river check shove or like uh when ed miller dared people to just follow him around las vegas check rising rivers <laughs> yeah yeah and you know they don't do it they don't do it so um, i'm happy that you know i was able to like you know find a spot to do that but assuming this was not a read best place I definitely agree that, you know, there's no reason to check shove if the guy's not betting a hand like a nine or pocket eights or something. And I think the most important oh. takeaway is just that you should be value betting yourself. Like your check raising range should be hands, your, your check raise bluffing range should be hands that aren't strong enough to value bet um, and, but do have a chance of winning at showdown. So like if you kind of think about when you're playing out of position, um, you're going to have two different kinds of bluffs you're gonna have hands that just bet as a bluff initially when you like was your first act and then you're also gonna have hands that check raise as a bluff and the hands that bet out as a bluff are hands that can't win if the action goes check check not necessarily 100 percent of them but those those are like your candidates for betting out as a bluff you're you wouldn't want to take a hand like if you had uh, ace high in this situation or, or you're like maybe a pair of fours like a weaker pair um you wouldn't want to take a hand like that and, uh, and and bet out with it as a bluff, A, because you're less likely to make better hands fold, but B, because the, the value of bluffing is lower since you have a chance of winning by it going check-check. Once your opponent bets, if you decide your hand isn't strong enough to call with, now the EV of, of your hand is 
zero if you don't bluff with it. Right, like because calling isn't an option, or going to showdown is no longer an option for you. The way, like when you check, the EV of checking is greater than zero because you're expecting to win sometimes. So, like the EV of bluffing would have to be not just greater than zero, but greater than the EV of checking to make it correct. Once you check, and if your opponent bets and you're not going to call, now the like default EV of your hand is zero. Like that's the bar that you have to clear. So bluffing doesn't have to be very profitable in this situation. It just has to be better than folding, um, or like. You know, competitive with folding anyway and uh, so generally your your check raise bluff should be hands that had showdown value had your opponent not bet and they just lose their showdown value against your opponent's betting range and if your hand is strong enough that you can actually like expect to bet and be ahead when called then you probably just shouldn't be betting that hand or you shouldn't be checking that hand in the first place you should be value betting it and it should be like weaker showdown bound hands that you end up turning into um into bluffs just as like a, a like theory point Okay, okay, that makes sense to me. In fact, I think I've heard Nate mention that exact point on one of the episodes of the podcast. Uh, I guess it would have been the last one that he and I were on together. The idea that it doesn't need to be profitable, uh, just profitable, it just need, it also has to be more profitable than, like, uh, checking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. <laughs> This whole strategy segment has been like sort of a long, uh, indirect argument for buying Andrew's book, right? It's like, oh, I don't want to use a solver, but maybe <laughs> I need to understand game theory a bit better. If only there were some more digestible way that I could, like, you know, really get like an be guided by an expert hand through this subject. If yeah, I, I agree with that. I'm looking forward to it. Do Do we have a date yet? Um, I actually, Emily just suggested to me, which is true. Um, so initially I was thinking like early May or you know, mid-May maybe get it out before the WSOP. And then she was like, well, there's probably not going to be a WSOP, so maybe try to get it out sooner. Like there's a lot of people probably like looking for something to read right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. Ideally uh, sooner. Okay. Okay. How, what's the situation like where you guys are? I don't know, honestly. I, I haven't really gone anywhere. <laughs> I've I've been um, just kind of in in one or two places for the, almost a month now. I, mean, I I really don't know like what other people are doing. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I I live a charmed life. I live. I I have a lot of uh, things in my corner. My employer is very nice to me. Uh, understands that I have childcare responsibilities. Um, so I'm I'm living a charmed life. As for what things are like in uh, Melrose, um, it was nice out today. So tons of kids playing outside, six feet away from each other. Um, <laughs> like I've been, I've been uh, trying to keep myself as stocked in food as I can. So I've been running to grocery stores like at the very end of the day and minimizing the time I spend inside and like getting home and uh, immediately taking things out of cardboard boxes and recycling the cardboard boxes outside, etc. In part because the things I want to buy are the things that are still left in the grocery store at the end of the day. Like, for example, at the uh, four bags of frozen kale and three large tubs of spinach. <laughs> um, you know, like the one thing that they don't have that I really want that is that is that this, the shelves are bare of by the end of the day is canned vegetables. But that's okay. Um, there's a lot of smoked fish. And I, I'm a great fan of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, things are what they are. People are mostly, I think, actually self-quarantining. There seems to be some portion of, of stubborn people 
Um, they skew older. Um, like there are people hanging out in the convenience store playing the lottery, oh, and it's like yeah. it's like you're, you're playing two lotteries and. <laughs> <laughs> And, and they're both bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but, you know, um, for the most part, yeah, things are what they are. I mean, uh, I've, uh, you know, another way in which I, I live a charmed life is that uh, uh, a lot of my attention, like I'm, I'm, I'm paying attention, I'm trying to understand that exponential growth is, is what it is and the world is going to look very different in a week. Um, but like, when I'm not sort of researching and keeping up my hygiene and so on um, of various sorts, uh, I, I, I am parenting or working. And working is is what I do for work, and parenting is extremely engaging and a complete joy. So um, a lot of my attention just, just goes to my son. Um, he is not in daycare these days. So uh, we are reading lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of books together and, you know, taking walks when the weather is good and doing a lot of art. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm hearing all about his life. And, and uh, so lots of, lots of time with the kid, lots of time with the kid. Good, good. That's what's important. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. I, uh, yeah, yeah. Crazy. He's two and a half. He's two and a half. Jeez. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems very recent that you were reading Teeth yeah, of Knockers. I was just yeah. thinking about that. Car- Car- Carlos, Carlos was kind enough to read, uh, to provide a dictation of my son's uh, then favorite book, uh, which was uh, Teeth Are Not For Biting. And the book is never better than when uh, Mr. Carlos is reading it. Well, and this, I mean, uh, obviously, like Carlos does have a great voice for that sort of thing, anyway. But this was specifically because your son had previously like responded to hearing Carlos. Like he would sort of like perk up or something when he heard Carlos's voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My son is a is a Carlos enthusiast, <laughs> like like so many people, like so many people. He's like, is what it? he checks up the river. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mr. Carlos, the fish daddy. <laughs> well, I mean, what what he would say is like, "Excuse me, <laughs> excuse me." He would he would hold up one finger in the air and say, "Excuse me." <laughs> does he really do that? Yeah, he does that. He's, that he's, is he's, awesome. I yeah, can visualize that. <laughs> he's doing what many toddlers do, which is uh, uh, adapting um, or adopting uh, the vocal tics of adults. He, he he keeps the company of so there's like yeah but like the great thing is he does it to like correct one of his own answers too so like you can say oh like what what's that truck and he'll say pumper truck <sighs> hold up one finger excuse me <laughs> <laughs> fire engine <laughs> that is awesome man wow. yeah it's great but like so that's that's my life it's amazing and so i mean you know uh that that that's where that's where my thought goes that's where my energy goes you know and like uh yeah it, he's he's hearing from everyone he's really good at washing his hands and he's, he's like yeah dad i i, I cough into my elbow yeah very good <laughs> very good my man very good yeah so uh excuse me just check it lean out lean out <laughs> uh, oh, that's great. 
Yeah, it's great. I will say for you know, when I was sort of um, saying I, I didn't really empathize or, or connect with the people for whom the socializing was, was really important, but um, and not that I'm like particularly worried about you guys or that you're like particularly high risk or anything, but I, I think I am getting some. Um, it's just like reassuring to hear the voices of people that you like, like they're, yeah. they're like when, when when things are stressful, both because you're worried about them, and I think it's just like innately calming. So it, it has been good to uh, to talk to you guys and to know that uh, neither of you is dying right now. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully, if I survive, I will get to talk to you again in a couple of days when we uh, do. I'm assuming that you've talked to Steve. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> about doing uh, the Heads Up Poker podcast. So yeah, I forgot about that. It'll be, yeah, so try to stay alive. No, yeah, that's true, because you and I will be like co-guests <laughs> on a show, which is, that'll be a first for us. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, that will be, um, that's going to be fun. All right, well, I, I will not touch my face between now and then. <laughs> Same. All right. If only, if only there were somebody they could, uh, they could have as backup, you know. <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 been a real pleasure. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, be safe, be healthy. Let me know if I can help you with anything. Thanks, guys. Have a good Same. night. Same. Thanks, guys. You take care. Bye bye. of a car light of the fair passage of a bill and who will sign us into you're playing two lotteries and, <laughs> and, and they're both bad for you <laughs> <laughs> won't, won't.